Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Michael Wertheim is a leader in the digital media with more than 15 years of experience driving rapid growth and monetization at digital media businesses. Wertheim is currently the COO of Fatherly, a media company for dads. Michael's previous experience includes being the general manager of Entertainment Weekly Digital and head of audience development, business development, and strategy for Upworthy. Prior to joining Fatherly, he was consultant for dozens of media companies, including National Geographic, New York Media, and the New York Times. Michael has a BA from Harvard University and an MBA from Stanford Graduate School of Business. Why, those are schools that I couldn't even spell, so I'm looking forward (laughs) to learning from you. Michael, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Dude, you're smart. Uh, I went to good schools. Yeah, (laughs) you went to good. No, you like did was was school easy for you, or did you have to work at it? I had to work at it. I definitely was one of those people who had to work at it. Um, and uh, and business school is especially. Um, a lot of people say business school is really easy, but a lot of those people are people who came from consulting or uh, investment banking backgrounds. And I came from an entrepreneurial background and hadn't had any experience in finance or accounting or all that. So it was a, a lot of hard work for me, uh, side of all the socializing and, uh, and enjoyment. That's really cool. I mean, you, you went to two spectacular schools as well. What do you think you pulled with you? Um, not only from the, I guess the business learnings and the scholastic side, but was there anything culturally that you pulled from either of those two schools um, that you bring with you into the business world? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, with with Harvard, I think it was the first time that like, I was never um, exposed to the business world. My father were, was a city employee, worked for the Board of Elections. My mother was a school nurse um, and sort of being plunged into this world whereby a lot of people came from backgrounds where their parents were in business. Uh, and then all of the... Um, recruiting um, was either business focused or, or going to law school um, or going to med school. You know, everything was very professionally focused. Sure. Um, so that really changed um, the way I looked at things and, you know, had, had no idea that business was even really an option um, until, until I went to Harvard. And, and actually when I was there, I, I, I worked at Harvard business school um, as an undergrad uh, in, uh, in their alumni office. Uh, and so learned a lot about business school at that point in time and thought, okay, maybe this is something I want to do, you know? Um, and so I, I, you know, really sort of the, going to Harvard really whet the appetite. And then Stanford was a very, very different experience. Like despite the fact that it was like the business school, it was sure. actually a very touchy feely experience in a lot of ways. It was a smaller class, like 365 people, um, everyone got to know each other very well. It was very much, very focused on organizational behavior and learning about yourself um, and the, the social side of things on top of the rigorous analytical side of things. So I think sure. I really learned the value of developing relationships and learning about um, how to take feedback from people, how to give feedback to people, uh, and how you come across differently to different people. Interesting. Total introspection. 
a lot of a very introspective experience. Did it did it raise your bar at all? I would imagine. I mean, for me, I went to a I went to a university that accepted me, and I'm not I'm not really kidding. Like I, I applied to three, I got into two, um, barely went to the one that I don't know seemed like fun. I went to a very kind of average school, average university in Canada, and, and I, I was surrounded by a lot of very average students. Um, I, I would imagine that Harvard, being you know, being at Harvard and being at, at Stanford, you were surrounded by everybody was top of the class. Like there was nobody that was average there. Was that did that raise your bar at all? Did that did that change your perspective at all on on I guess what was available to hire, to work with, to to surround yourself with? I, I think it it had to have. Um, I I mean I really love being around smart people. I love being around creative, entrepreneurial, intelligent people. That being said, I've really found in the years since graduation, especially from graduation from business school, that that doesn't necessarily correlate with where you went to school. I mean I've met plenty of the most challenging, the most intelligent people who didn't go to college or, you know, or did what you say you did, which is nice. to college you were accepted to. Um, and uh, so it definitely raised my bar for wanting to work with smart people and being able to, to sniff that out, you know, very, very quickly. Um, but it didn't, um, it didn't make me look for, uh, look to work with the kinds of people that I necessarily went to school with. In fact, um, going to, working with all people like that um, would not be conducive to running uh, most organizations. Um, so, a lot of chiefs and, and not as many Indians. Let me, let me ask you about that. There's, there seems to have been in the last, I'll say, 10 years, I don't know if trend is the right word, but there seems to have been a, um, people commenting outwardly that they maybe are almost discriminating against MBAs, that they're almost turning against the classic, you know, educational background versus the experience of hard knocks. Any thoughts around that at all? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I understand it. I look skeptically at MBAs when they apply for positions because like, especially, I mean, if, if, if I were a consultant, if I were an investment banker, private equity, certain fields where MBAs, you know, thrive and, and, are, and, and are necessary, um, that's one thing. But being in industry and being in media, being at a startup, you know, I always think, is this somebody who's going to roll their sleeves up and and, and get dirty? Sure. Um, and I don't know that all of my classmates were, were like that. So I, I think it's, it's right. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily always look at an MBA as the best thing in the world if you want to go into certain fields. Um, and I think you really need to have a certain personality um, that accompanies your experience. I mean, I think if you, if, if you can put both together, then that's phenomenal. And I've hired some amazing MBAs. Um, but it, it, I'm usually skeptical when I'm actually interviewing an MBA. Yeah, and I, and I haven't hired that many over the years. So I, I don't even know if I'm skeptical other than just guarded a little bit. I want to I go into what you talked about with rolling up your sleeves in a second. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about what Fatherly is, how the, how the kind of brand has been built, what, um, what the company exists for, and um, just so we actually understand that. Sure. Um, well, Fatherly's mission is to empower men to raise great kids and leave, lead fulfilling adult lives. Uh, we really recognize there, there are tons and tons of mom, uh, so we're a media company, 
Um, and we, there are tons and tons of media companies for moms. There's mm. Scary Mommy, there's Cafe Mom, uh, there's The Bump, there's What to Expect. There's, there's, there are dozens and dozens and dozens. Sure. And our founders really recognized that there was nothing out there specifically for dads and that the content really spoke directly at moms. Yet in the Gen X and millennial generations, uh, the parent, the fathers were um, increasingly involved in their kids' lives, if not um, as equal partners in raising their children. So we thought, okay, so the founders thought let's, let's, found something for them that there's really a white space in the marketplace and it was interesting um there were a lot of investors who said no um when they went and to raise money because they didn't think that um that men were going to be interested in parenting content um you know a lot of people really thinking um the, about the way children used to be raised and that the dad was just you know he was dr- dragged along um, but he didn't really care that much. Um, yep. so there were a lot of skeptical investors, um, but luckily a few uh, really saw the possibilities and uh, and said yes. And so the company was founded, it was about four years ago. Okay. And uh, and uh, we've grown uh, you know, pretty dramatically. We're about five and a half million um, unique visitors per month at this point. Um, and really, and, and reaching um, you know, even more than that through social media. Interesting. No, you're right. And, and it is absolutely on trend. I mean, I remember my, my kids were born, my first child was born 17 years ago. And, and I was, I was, I wanted to be involved. I didn't understand how to be involved. Um, I didn't have a peer group of, of other dads who were kind of actively involved. We were, you know, walking our kid to the park and, and changing diapers, but we, we were kind of confused. And, um, and, you know, all we had was like what, what to expect when you're expecting and that whole series of books and then some random stuff that, you know, our wives would have handed to us that didn't seem targeted at all. So, um, okay. So, so how did you get involved in the business? How did you, what did you see that I guess grabbed you to not only get involved in the movement, but in the business itself? I got involved really early on. I got involved when it was a concept. Um, so I got involved about five, five and a half years ago. Um, I knew both of the founders and uh, they asked me to be an advisor and help them with this idea that they had at the time. And I remember, you know, they, they were really smart. They found a, a you know, an organization called the 92nd Street Y, um, which is on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, um, and asked them if they could access their list of parents and send an email out to their list of parents and try this out um, and see if they were, um, you know, responsive to it. Uh, and uh, and I, I watched them, you know, advising them sort of every step of the way and saw the early successes and, you know, really believed in the potential of this business. And uh, I, I was frankly pretty jealous because I, I wanted to be a part of the business, but there were two founders at the time and, uh, and they didn't need someone and I needed to take a salary. Um, and so they didn't need someone of my level. And so I just sort of watched from afar, um, met, with them, met with them on a monthly basis and watched the company grow. Um, and then I joined on a consulting basis um, in January of last year, helping them to start building more of the team uh, when they realized, you know, we really need a COO. Um, and so I was very fam- fortunate enough to be very familiar with sure. the business when I joined it full time um, and knew 
the knew how well uh, it was it was doing and really believed in um, the CEO specifically. It's interesting. That's very similar to how I ended up joining One Eight Hundred Got Junk years ago. Was when uh, Brian, the founder, had asked me to kind of coach him and help him out a little bit, and I started giving him some free advice and hanging out with him and giving him more free advice. And then he asked if I would do some consulting, and I was billing him by the hour. And I, I remember flying all over the place, and I was working and he got a couple of invoices. He's like, dude, this is insane. You're billing me like a hundred hours a week. Can you prove it? And I started showing him the hours. He goes, you're a workaholic. I'm like, yeah, I kind of like this and it's fun and you need me. And he goes, I can't afford to pay you by the hour anymore. Let's bring you on full time. And that was really the beginning of the end where we um, started to scale it up. So wow. did he, he, and Brian, I guess, saw because of the time that I invested and the relationship that we had, there was a huge amount of trust built. Is that what the founders saw in you as well? There was you know, the trust was already there. It was kind of implicit. Yeah, absolutely. The trust was there. The working styles were um, complementary. Um, they, uh, they, they knew that I really, I really got it. Um, and that, and also they were able to sort of test me with the early employees. So mm-hmm. I worked really closely with the 15 or so employees who were here. They got very positive, um, reactions from them and knew that bringing me on would be a good cultural fit. So, yeah. And so the early employees, I guess, were around you as well then. They almost got to interview you just because you were around the business before you even started. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. I was just reading uh, the hard thing about hard things today. It talked about how hard it is to often bring in senior talent into an early stage company. That's one of the core things they talk about is how to get the employees kind of indoctrinated or, um, you know, warmed up to you. So what kind of skills did you bring into the business then? I mean, you'd been around the, um, uh, the digital space for a long time. What did you bring in and, and what parts of the business do you run today? And what parts do the two founders run today? Okay. That's, uh, that's a few questions. Let's, let's see which one should I take first? Um, what's, what skills I brought to the business? Um, I, I would say, you know, number one would be um, audience growth. Um, I've, I've worked with all, all the companies that you cited and more on audience growth strategies. Uh, and really, you know, I like, took Entertainment Weekly from 2 million unique visitors a month to 11 million, took Upworthy, you know, up to, you know, about 85 million uniques. Um, so I really, I, I, my, my biggest strength spikes in marketing. Um, and then my second biggest strength really spikes in uh, people management um, and uh, and people development. Okay. So I think those are the two things that I really that I really brought to the table the most. That being said, I had been a general manager in the past, so I had um, you know purview over all the all the different functions in the past. Um, so the, that's the, those are the skills I would say. Okay. And what parts of the business do they run today and what parts do you oversee then? I mean, it's interesting when, when you're the second in command, Harvard actually wrote an article probably about 14 years ago, I'm guessing it was called the misunderstood role of the COO. And it talked about the seven distinct types of chief operating officers. And, you know, some, some COOs operate and they oversee engineering, others op- oversee IT, others, you know, run away from IT or run away from finance. So what areas report into you and what, what areas still report into the founders? I was thrilled when I found that article. Uh, I thought that was a great article. I shared it with our CEO. Um, it made me feel uh, feel better about myself. Um, you know, I, I'm playing an interesting role here, which would be very different if I went to a different organization because of the strengths of the founders. Okay. Um, 
the CEO, uh, it, like I, I've actually managed sales in multiple places before, um, but the CEO is a salesperson through and through. He's one of the best salespeople I've ever met in my life. He headed up sales for Thrillist, um, which is a uh, you know, men's publication that's now a part of Group Nine um, for years before, uh, before he came here. So he heads up sales and sales marketing and PR. Um, and those are the, those are really his core functions. He also really likes the finance side of things. So he heads up finance. And then um, over time, uh, the, his, his co-founder was overseeing um, the editorial functions, but I had actually had a lot more experience with editorial. So I took over editorial uh, and video. Um, in addition to audience development, which is what we call marketing in the media space, um, product, technology, and human resources. So what are they left with now then? So the CEO um, is left with sales, sales marketing, finance, and PR. Okay. And the C and, and the other founder actually recently left the company, um, and which I think um, was was partially his desire to do new things, but I think partially just the fact that the roles got very crowded. It got it got crowded at the top, and a lot of the things that he was doing initially were things that I came in to take over, which he knew was going to happen. And a lot of your strength and background is in the marketing space as well. So the CEO overseas marketing, but you've got some, I guess, huge subject matter expertise there. Does that any friction cause there at all? Well, he oversees sales marketing. So coming up with ideas for salespeople and I oversee consumer marketing. Got it. Okay. Um, cool. So while I, while I am strong in both areas, um, it's the consumer marketing that really gets me going. How do you, and um, one of the things I, I try to really understand, and we, we talk about this a lot at the COO Alliance, we started the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command, a place for the COOs to learn from each other. And one of the things we try to, to figure out there is how do we get the COO to get on the same page as the CEO when it comes to vision and strategy? And how do we get the COO to sign, or sorry, the CEO to sign off on the kind of the plans and, and the, the way that we're going to grow the company that the COO puts in place? So how do you guys get on the same play, page when it comes to vision and planning? And, um, you know, how do you stay on the same page? Oh. Constant communication. Uh, we do a daily stand-up, um, a half hour. Um, I guess it's not really so much of a stand-up if you're, if you've got a half hour and we do sit. Um, but and we do um, a, once a, a week. We have a uh, a more in-depth meeting on planning, and then once a quarter we take a weekend and spend a bunch of time together uh, and and talk about more strategic issues and strategic planning. So, you know, the, the best way I would say is just, just for constant communication. So you, sorry, you and he are doing the daily standup or is that you with it, with the team as well? That's uh, well, I do, I do do standups with certain parts of my team. Um, but that, but he and I do an individual, you know, one-on-one daily standup. One-on-one daily for a half hour. For a half hour. Yeah, th yeah, that's huge. I mean, that. so so. What can you walk us through that? I mean, I, I think that's actually really, really powerful. Now, and is it you that wants that or him or both? And and maybe tell us how it, how it works. What's the agenda look like? I would say it's both, you know? Uh, I think uh, I think it's very much in his nature to do a daily stand-up, but very quickly, it was something that I wanted. I wanted to get it as... Um, as uh, knowledgeable about the business as quickly as possible. Um, and then we're also 
going in different directions almost the entire day, every day. Sure. And totally. we need to, we need to catch up and then really, you know, sync up about what's going on. So, you know, we'll usually, you know, we, we, Put together an agenda over the course of the day we have a google doc that we just throw ideas into you know things that we're thinking about things that have happened um meetings that we've had uh and then we usually just go through that agenda um, so you know, instead of pinging each other constantly on slack and email and and messaging you're dropping it into the agenda and talking face to face about it yes yeah, so, I mean, we do slack each other quite often, uh, but that's you know anything that needs to get resolved immediately or and or little things. That's really that's great, I and mean, that's that's huge stuff. So, um, can can you talk to me about how you um, how have you built out your team, and, and maybe give us some some scope as to what what the size of your team is right now and what it looks like operationally, so people know what we're talking about. So my team uh, in total is about thirty people. Um, you know, when, when I came to fatherly, there were about six people on that okay. team. So in the, in the last year and a half, I've really built, built it out, uh, pretty dramatically. Um, sorry, can you repeat the, the yeah. specific question? No, the, the, yeah, I just wanted to get the scope of, of what it looked like. And wh- where are you? Are you all operating out of the same offices? Are you remote? Is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both. We are mostly uh, out of the same offices in New York City, but we have, um, so editorial is under me and there are about uh, three uh, or four editors actually who are remote. Uh, and then we have salespeople around the country as well. Interesting. Okay. And then how do you, how do you find them? How do you bring them on board? How do you align them as well? So how do you, how do you find them? How do you kind of onboard them and how do you keep them aligned? So in terms of finding them, we have done a variety, used a variety of tactics. None have been as uh, effective as personal networking um, at this stage of the company. Um, you know, we have like one of the things I think, one of the things about Mike, our CEO, is that he's an inveterate networker. And that's one of the things that he and I share. And one of, one of the reasons I think he wanted to bring me on was he thought it would you know, multiply our network. So we spent a lot of time reaching out to our networks to find the right people. And I think mm. pretty much all of our senior management have come through um, through a networking connection, if not um, most of the team you know, it, itself. Um, you know, we've used job boards. Um, we've used um, certain uh, certain tools that like help scan LinkedIn. Um, but those have been really low, um, low, low, get, get low net results for us. Sure. You know, um, it's been a lot of networking um, to bring people on board, which is, you know, exhausting and, and, and frankly harder um, on the, on the, you know, more entry level jobs than it is on some of the higher up jobs. Um, you know, cause at this point my network isn't, you know, one year out of college, two years out of college. Um, but we've found some of those people as well through networking. And then how are you onboarding people? Do you have any kind of a process that helps you onboard them, I guess, culturally, and then also skill side? We do. We have a very, um, involved welcome email, um, where we send a bunch of different links to different documents, including an org structure, um, our, um, our mission and vision, um, our, 
our product roadmap for the year, um, you know, we give them as much as possible to sort of read up on in advance. Um, and also just, you know, but we also say, you know, you don't need to read, read up on this before you start. This is so you have this, you know, um, you know, to refer to, you know, over time. So we, we do that. Um, and then we make sure that when each new employee starts, they're set up with meetings with anyone who would be appropriate for them um, to who they're going to work with closely, but also so that they get, uh, because we're a smaller company, we're 50, uh, 51 people in total at the moment. Um, we made sure that they meet with each, um, the head of each department at some point. Um, so we do as much as we can to onboard um, people. We also do what we call um, a tour of duty, um, which um, we've, we've ripped off from several other companies, which is asking um, the employee what their goals are um, for the, you know, the next year or two. And um, so that we can get to know them a little bit better and then help them achieve their goals. And that's, that's proven to be really successful in keeping employees because like we've, we've got a, a, a sales planner who, you know, we found out through this process really wants to learn coding um, and takes coding, you know, computer coding courses awesome. at night. Um, and so we've given her little projects um, give the, our tech team has given her little projects to work on. That's cool. Have you read a book called The Dream Manager at all? I have not. I really encourage you to read it. I'll, um, I'll even link it in the show notes. It's written by a guy named Matthew Kelly. Um, it's a short read. It'll take you about three hours to read it. It's actually a true story about a, um, a woman who I've since met. We're actually in a mastermind together, a woman named Mary Miller. We're in the strategic coach together. But she runs a janitorial business out of um, Cincinnati. And, you know, a janitorial business is kind of a shitty business, right? You're cleaning toilets and it's hard to keep employees and it's hard, to get, them, hard to get them motivated to like a, you know, a, a greater purpose. I mean, God, really, right? You're cleaning toilets and you're cleaning yeah. up people's mess at work. Um, and they realized that if they cared more about their employees than they cared about the company, their employees would start to care about the company as much as the owners did. So they created this program called a dream manager to actually help employees basically cross items off their bucket list without attaching them to company goals. But they, they, they got every employee to write down 101 things they wanted to do or achieve or try or experience over, you know, or get better at or whatever. And, and when they understood all those goals, they then worked with employees to kind of help them get through it. And um, by caring about your employee, it sounds like you guys are doing it intuitively, but I think, so I think you'd really love the book. It might actually help you codify um, some of it a little bit as you scale as well. Uh, yeah, that sounds great. It's, um, you know, it's one, huge. Again, another thing we try to do is is or we we do is we we offer um, you know a thousand dollar reimbursement for any courses um, that that each employee wants to take, which I think is you know it's a, it's a big thing for a startup um, to be able to offer that. Um, we have only had three or four people take advantage of it. So we probably need to do a better job of institutionalizing it and making sure people do take advantage of it. But I know sure. people appreciate that it's there. We institutionalized it by, by making it a requirement for any pay raise or any promotion that they had to have taken two courses in the prior 12 months. So if they had, if they had not taken two courses in the prior 12 months, in anything, I mean, they could have taken a course in Excel or time management or people management or conflict management or situational leadership, didn't matter. Whatever the course was that they take, they had to have taken, and we would pay for the course, 
but they had yeah. to have taken two or they were not eligible for any pay raise or any promotion in the company. And I'll tell you what, as soon as you put that in place, all of a sudden, everybody's all of a sudden caring about their, their own education pretty quickly. I love that. Yeah. It's kind of sell them, don't tell them, right? Yeah. So uh, can you, can you share with us some of the, um, I guess the, the key strategies on what you've done to grow your audience in digital platforms? I mean, I'm selfishly curious because, um, uh, of kind of what I'm building out with the CO Alliance and then also with the podcast um, that I've got the second in command podcast, but just curious um, what you've done that maybe has helped you scale. Sure. Um, it's been a hard time to grow. Um, the last, I mean, the, the, the first couple of years of fatherly um, Facebook was still being kind to publishers and uh, you know, we grew a lot on Facebook. And so when I got here um, about 90% of our traffic came from Facebook um, which scared the hell out of me. Um, I'd seen, I had that experience before both with Facebook and also just with, with other, um, sources. And, you know, anytime your business depends on, you know, so largely on one source, it's not a good thing. Yeah. So diversification was one of my number one priorities. Uh, and immediately, um, you know, we started focusing on search engine optimization, uh, and, uh, and, really training both both making sure that the site was programmed properly and training the editorial team uh, on search engine optimization best practices. We started developing um, a suite of partnerships with other organizations, both media organizations and non-media organizations that we that that drove traffic to us or shared our videos um, and we would often do the same for them. Um, we developed a relationship with Flipboard, with Apple News, um, you know, with as, as many, many sources as possible, and mm-hmm. then um, focused heavily on building our email newsletter. Um, you know, I've always been a huge believer in email. Um, every time somebody says email is dead, um, it never ends up being dead, and, and they, we keep coming back to it. Um, so we've built a subscriber base of about 500,000 subscribers. Holy shit. Um, do, you yeah. ch- do you charge for that at all, or is that a free list that you're sending out to? That is a free list. We are thinking about um, some specific content that we, that we do charge for. I'll tell you um, this. That, that is a free list. Do you, do you know the name Jay Conrad Levinson? He was the um, he was the author of Guerrilla Marketing. Yes, Remember the book. So, so he, he, I didn't I didn't know how strong he was outside of just being an author. But when he died, and this was um, well, I mean, it's re- related to faxes. So he probably died. Let's call it fifteen years ago or twenty years ago. But when he passed away twenty years ago, call it, he had a fax list of one hundred and eighty thousand people. So he was sending out a fax once a week wow. to one hundred and eighty thousand people. You know, obviously, you know, digital, right? Like comes out from one and goes out to all the list. But it was two dollars a month for people mm. to be on his fax list. To, to basically, that would be like an email list now, right? You'd get a, a weekly email with all of the tips or ideas or strategies or whatever. But people yeah. were paying two dollars, two dollars a month, and his whole thing was regardless of who he touched, he had to have something that it was almost irresponsible of them not to sign up for. And $2 a month seemed to be the number back then. Maybe it's $5 a month today. But it was a number that people are like, yeah, what the hell, two bucks a month, throw away. It was $360,000 a month. It was a $4 million business that he had one person basically pulling together the facts and sending it out the door. Like, I'm like, wow, what a, it's crazy, right? Yeah. 
That's amazing. To mon- um, now, you know, p- other people are talking about, well, you monetize it, you email them, you're putting them into your funnel, blah, blah, blah. But okay, but what about also just monetizing to the 500,000 people that want to pay you a couple couple bucks a month? Yeah, I mean, we've, uh, uh, we, we talk a lot about um, paywalls and charging people for, for content. And, you know, I, I think it would be very difficult to charge for our generalized parenting advice um, and our, just our general content because you can really find it elsewhere. Sure. I think, but we're, foc- we're, we're focusing on a couple of areas where you can't get it elsewhere. Um, and one of those areas is actually in the um, like, uh, post-puberty years um, and the teen years. But you're, that, also, like, you're, you're also selling to a group of people that were so used to getting magazines delivered to the door that they can find anywhere too, right? Uh, yes, yes, that is absolutely right. Um, so, but we've identified this area of folks that are, um, you know, that are raising teenagers who sort of, you know, are pulling out their hair and like really do anything for like one or two just good pieces of advice. And so that's something we are going to test out um, on a paid basis. That's interesting. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think that, you know, there, there's a, a lot of media is looking, looking to things that they can charge consumers for now, since it's, um, you know, the, uh, everything's been ad supported, um, in the last, how, however many 15 years since the internet came out or not, everything's sure. been ad supported, but a lot has been ad supported. Um, but I think it's, you know, you have to have something really clearly differentiated at this point to be able to charge for content. For sure you do. Yeah. Or, or you just have a, have a tribe that's so strong that people are just willing to continue to pay. Yeah. How, um, where have you guys struggled over the years? Any areas that you've kind of learned from, you know, struggled lessons from the edge that we can learn from? Lessons from the edge. Um, Anything you failed at or really, you know, struggled with? We struggle with biting off more than we can chew at times. You know, um, like one of the things we, we have a, a franchise called Father of the Year. And the, it was originally called the Father of the Year Awards. And we were going to profile all these amazing dads, both uh, famous dads and non-famous dads. And then we were going to do a big award show um, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, we, had, we, we put down a deposit for it. We were going to host this big award show that we were going to hope to get televised. And, and, and this was in, you know, this was last year. This was like in year three of the business. And, uh, you know, the, the founders were just really bullish on this and thought, okay, this is good, something that's going to put us on the map. Um, and, you know, after a few months of watching our head of communications, who wasn't even an events person, you know, work on planning this event um, and seeing that it was something that was not as easy to sell in the marketplace to advertisers because we weren't a known commodity, I had to pull the sure. plug on it. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that was, it was really hard when I pulled the plug, um, you know, people in, in, within the organization were disappointed and it was like one of those sort of big swings that you were going for that could sort of make you or break you. Um, yeah. but I really like, I, I pretty much weighed the pros and cons and I thought this is, this is going to break us if we continue with it. Um, so, you know, I think really having to be, um, very laser focused on what you know your core competencies are at the beginning and where you are in your life cycle if that makes any sense yeah good for you to know when to kill it as well especially if it was an idea that was a founder's idea i think we often in the in the kind of earlier days of building a company maybe in the the 10 to 200 employee phase um, the owners are still very much not in charge of strategy but a lot of their their ideas get put into action either because they quick start them in or we say yes to them but we haven't really 
developed kind of the matrix decision making to allow some of the ideas to get shelved. Um, how do you say no? I mean, that's one of the roles I think of the COO is to almost say the emperor has no clothes at times. How do you say no to the, to the founder's ideas and still say yes to the right ones? And then also how do you, how do you say no and keep the relationship strong? Uh, that is such a huge part of what my job is and something I've even forgotten um, became part of my job. Like when I came here, the answer to everything was yes. Uh, and it was, you know, by when do you need it? Right. Um, and I, I walked in, I was like, wow, this is incredible. How do you guys get anything done? You know, and, and I would and I would talk to employees and really hear that they would disagree at times or they would think that things shouldn't be done. You know, and I really, you know, I started ta talking to the employees and really empowering them to push back and say, you know, like, let me think about that. Or, you know, um, if, if I do this, this isn't going to happen. Um, I also, I mean, I had an explicit talk with the CEO before where I started um, saying, you, you know, my job is going to be to say no to you pretty often, you know, and, and, and we were friends as well. Yeah, sure. you know, so like, that's going to, you know, that's going to put a strain on our relationship. Um, but I, you know, want you to, you know, I just want to make sure you understand that, you know, and then we, we sort of, we've checked in, um, you know, every few months or so on it. Um, we're also really fortunate enough um, that we've had a um, an organizational consultant who's worked with us, um, especially with the transition of the of the you know the co-founder. Right, um, the co-founder moving out, sure. Yeah, so um, those you know we we meet once a month, and that's a good opportunity for us to sort of check in, um, you know, and you know with a third voice in the room, be able to um, to talk through, you know, oh, I think you're actually saying no too much, or you know, I, I actually think you're you're being too. Um, too ambitious here, um, you know, so I'm, I'm not gonna say we couldn't do it without a third voice, but the third voice has really helped us. So I used to, I used to screw up. Um, well, <laughs> I guess we also, no, I used to screw up frequently that I would say no publicly probably more than I should have. Um, and I think that I was right to say no. I think that the issues were the right ones to say no to, but I didn't understand the forum to necessarily do that. And so I would equate it now to a mother and father raising kids where let's say the mom says, you know, you're grounded for two weeks and the father says, no, that's a stupid idea. The kid has blah, blah, blah. And they argue in front of the kids. Even though the father was right, it was the wrong timing. And I think I probably could have kept my disagreements off, offline and private with the CEO, with Brian versus, I, I used to do it in board meetings and leadership team meetings. I was just like, fucking, I'm, I will argue my point because not to be right, but just to be heard. And, and he did the same. And I think, I think we kind of messed that one up or I messed that one up. Any thoughts around that at all? Yeah, I think that you know, going back to the daily standups, I think that's one of the things that saves me from having to say no, like in the moment. Because I know that at the very least, it's going to be less than 24 hours before I have a chance to talk to him again sure. um, and, really, and really express my opinion. Um, but I've, I've had to learn that lesson too, you know. Um, and, and you see, like, you know, I, I, I try to, when I do say no or when I do express some sort of discomfort, I try to do it um, with a form of, of humor um, and, and uh, you know, really not, not be too harsh about it. 
um, so that we can preserve the relationship. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, it, it's, it's apparent sometimes that we have a disagreement, but it's something that, you know, is, is clear that we're not going to be hashing out in that moment. Yeah. I don't think that was a skill that I learned early enough. I, I really wish that I had learned that one, um, probably earlier on in my career to be able to temper I'm a, a little bit like a dog with a bone at times. And if and I just kind of chomp at it and I don't, I've, I've been kind of diagnosed to be on the spectrum with Tourette's recently as well, that, that I just say what's on my mind and it comes out. Um, and it's not an excuse, but I think I could have been a lot more introspective with, or, or kind of leverage that emotional intelligence. Um, talk to us about, about how you've, kind of built out your team do you have a you've got a management team now or do you have a layer between kind of you and the ceo and and the rest of the group yes so uh or or there's not a layer between me and the ceo but there is there is a management team um that mostly sits under me he's got um two managers under under him the head of sales and the um, head of pr and then i have um five direct managers so the head of video head of editorial audience development, product, and technology. Um, and we all meet as a management team. In fact, I just just came from um, our weekly management team meeting. Um, so that includes um, my direct reports and me um, and his direct reports and him. Uh, and that's that's the full management team. Okay. So it's uh, it's about nine people, I think, nine or, nine or 10 people. So I, I, I was talking with um, Clayton Mask, who's the founder of Infusionsoft recently. We were in a mastermind together called the Genius Network, and we were talking about how a company can only go through two successive doubles um, before the management team can't really continue to do their job, right? If, they, if the company goes from four to eight million, they can still do their job from eight to 16, they're starting to get stretched. And then recently I, I read in um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, um, Ben Horowitz said that a company can't go through a triple which, you know, they can't go from 4 million to 12 million, which is basically the same, right? 4 to 8 to 16. Yep. Any thoughts around how you're going to grow your team or stay ahead of your team with the, I call it the chess moves, like strategically thinking about, you know, the, the company is going to scale. What's the team look like in two years? And how do you either get your current team to keep managing well? Um, or how do you work to keep them in the company, but reporting to newer people? Have you come across that at all yet? It's something we've given a lot of thought to. It's not something we've come across. We haven't come across the issue yet, yeah. but we know that there are some people, um, you know, who are better, you know, who are, who are great at getting, um, get, like getting a company to, you know, $15 million in revenue, um, but maybe haven't really done that before. Uh, d- d- done, you know, like $30 million in revenue before. Right. Sure. Um, we, um, and there's there, and, and so there are some people who we've hired with the understanding that as we grow, there may be a layer of management that comes on top of them. We've tried to be sort of as open and honest about that as possible. Um, and they've been okay with that. Not, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that, oh, it's just going to be super easy. <laughs> right. They're, they're not going to love it, but whatever. They're not going to love it, but, you know, yeah. we tried to bring them on without understanding. Um, and then we've also hired, I've been fortunate enough to hire a couple people who are really punching way above, above their weight um, that they, um, they could do a lot more. They, they've been parts of much bigger organizations, but they really wanted to join an organization of this size at this stage and see it through. 
um, um, you know, as, as it grows. So I do not have the answer there at all because we haven't, uh, you know, gone through a dramatic growth phase. You know, we, we, um, we will grow about, um, about 60% this year. I mean, that's, it's great growth. It's great growth. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so we'd grow about 60% this year in terms of revenues. Um, and we'll learn, we're, we're aiming to grow, um, another 50 to 60% next year. Um, but, uh, we, it, it, it'll, it'll be interesting. I, I, I'm, I, I, I know it'll be, so it'll be somewhat bumpy. So I've always, I've always said that the leader's job is to grow people. Right. And if our, in fact, if we even flip the org chart upside down, so the leader is at the bottom supporting the VPs who are supporting the managers who are supporting the employees and customers, you know, our job is to support our team in terms of, of aligning them with what they're supposed to be working on and giving them the skills if they need them in certain areas and giving them emotional support in their personal lives and the work. How do you grow your team? How do you grow your direct reports? Is there anything that you do systematically there? systematically i mean i i i do also um i i just i'm a very bespoke manager so i wouldn't say i do like one thing systematically i really get to know each person um individually and see what makes them tick this is a little bit of my stanford experience sort of learning that you know a person can come across very differently to different people depending on their backgrounds and the lenses through which they view things um and so i think i i try to get to know each manager personally i go out to um to lunch with each of them at least once a week um, just to sort of shoot the shit and see what's going on. It often, um, it often, you know, it ends up being about work, but a lot of it ends up being about the, about their personal lives. Um, and I, I'm, and I'm just a very, uh, I think you know, everyone would say a very casual, like non-hierarchical manager. So I'm able to bring out, um, what they're really feeling. Um, and then also, but just systematically, I guess we do quarterly, um, reviews, um, so that gives us an opportunity to actually really formally sit down once a quarter and talk about how things are going yeah. um, and what, what and, and what help they need. And then once a year, in fact, in, in the next two weeks, we go into um, a 360 review process, um, which I find to be really valuable um, for myself and for all the employees. I'm going to I'm going to send you offline um, something called the monkeys looking sideways. I don't want to explain it right now, but it's a it's a, a live 360 feedback um, that you can do instead of doing the the typical anonymous one. I'll send it to you and get your thoughts on it. Wow. Do you do any um, last last kind of question on this, and then want want you to leave us with a parting thought? But do you ever do any personality profiles on your management team, and and uh, how do you use those if you do? We have um, we've done we used two. Um, one was the MBTI Myers Briggs test, um, yeah. and one was a I forget what it was called. But it was a conflict um, uh, a conflict style. Um, test. Um, and we, we, you know, we used to uh, work with a consultant who came in and helped us, you know, like really see sort of as an organization, where are our holes, you know, and as, and as, you know, management team, um, you know, how can we complement each other better? Um, and so I think, you know, people have been very cognizant of other people's personality types and conflict types and have really worked to, um, to compensate for them and to, um, to encourage each other, you know, the, those whose conflict types were to sort of 
um, I forget I forget what they're even called, but the you know to to just agree or to get in, you know, we will like we'll yeah, Amy will really push um, to express their opinion more often. I, I I find that those are like really can be really fascinating and very eye opening, especially for those in the organization who aren't as self aware or attuned to others' personality um, types or personality quirks. Yeah, I like I like doing one every year with the leadership team, um, and then it, just to learn how to work better together, learn about the other people on the team, not to try to change anybody, just have deeper insights. We've yeah. actually profiled all of the COOs at the CO Alliance, and we profiled the CEOs, and we're using a Colby profile. And we found they have completely different Colby profiles. So now we're actually getting the disc profile of the CEO and the COO, and we're seeing completely different profiles there as well. And it's interesting just to see that most entrepreneurs tend to be very kind of quick starts. They fly by the seat of their pants. They make it up as they go. They, um, you know, fire ready aim. Um, whereas the COOs tend to ask more questions and put systems in place to help scale. And we maybe start a little bit slower, but we kind of, we play catch up to a lot of the entrepreneurial mess and, Without both, without both the roles being played, the company doesn't scale. You know, you almost need that two in a box. Yeah. Um, why don't you leave us with with one of your, I guess, big parting tips? If you were starting out as a second in command today, or you were in a leadership role today, is there any, I guess, idea or um, something that's really worked well for you in the business world that somebody else could learn from? I would just say, really getting to know your CEO as well as possible before you start. Um, because as, as you were saying, there's many, many different types of COOs. Um, the, the role of COO is, is, is one of the most um, confusing ones from the outside and different um, when you compare, you know, I'm in a couple of COO groups and, and, you know, my role as COO is completely different from other, other people's roles as COO. Totally. Yeah. Um, and I think really getting to know, your C, your CEO as well as possible, you know, get making sure that your, um, that number one, your, uh, qualities really complement one another. And number two, that, you know, the CEO and you are both open to those, you know, complementary qualities, um, and that they're not going to be seen as, you know, as too, um, uh, as, as kind of conflict causing, yeah. you know, it's almost it's almost like dating before you get married. You may as well like get to know the other person before you dive right in, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I was I was very fortunate to to have this sort of you know running start. Um, you know, having known them beforehand, and and you know, and starting off as as a consultant. I know not everyone has that um, that opportunity, but I th- I would certainly say as a at a startup. Um, you know, a trial period is not the worst thing in the world. No, not at all. Michael Wertheim, thank you very much. You are the COO for Fatherly. I really appreciate you sharing your ideas, the insights, some of the wisdom from um, all of your years in doing this role with everybody who's listening today. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Talk soon. Bye now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.